works in our life. We understand, first off, that um, the fruit of the Spirit and everything that's being discussed in chapter 5 is ultimately an application of the truth that Paul is uh, has been given uh, in his defense of the justification by faith. Uh, and, and, and so we understand that there's some contextual obligation in our interpretation of this. So uh, last week, as we talked about, while we're being sanctified to represent Jesus Christ to the world, and we understand that to be the case, we are ambassadors, we'll talk about that here in a moment, the fruit of the Spirit is not to be understood as anything uh, that we are quote-unquote doing to or for others. Now, they're going to receive the benefit of that, obviously, but uh, it's not something that we're manufacturing, in other words. Instead, it is the Holy Spirit showing himself through us. And we, uh, as disciples, will inevitably learn, uh, and as we abide, as we walk with Jesus, as we walk in the Spirit, as we read here in Galatians chapter 5, uh, the fruit of the Spirit becomes more natural uh, mode of operation for us. We grow in the Lord. Uh and it also becomes incumbent upon us as disciples that we would participate, as it were, that we would not stifle, we would mortify the flesh and choose daily, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, to strive to walk in the Spirit and ultimately lead to be a good representation, an accurate representation of Jesus Christ to the world around us. The fact that this is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit through us it does not absolve us from the honor and the duty to strive for personal holiness. And so there's there's a balance there. And we've spent a couple of weeks talking about that balance because uh, we needed to have some understanding there. Now, by me, way of very quick review, we have this mortification, right? In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about his struggle with the flesh, his personal struggle. And we identify with that because here we are affected by the flesh. We have sin within us, Romans 7, 17. And we're talking about this flesh lusting against the spirit, as we read in Galatians 5, 17, and the spirit against the flesh. They're contrary one to another. And so when we're talking about mortification, and we throughout the New Testament, there are lists of uh, characteristics of the flesh and characteristics of uh, of the believer. And they're... they're put-ons, and put-offs. The struggle with the flesh is very real and is very present. And we all understand that that is the case. We've all experienced it. And I hope that in many respects that it is a struggle. If it's not a struggle, if it's an ease <laughs> to deal with your flesh, or it's comfortable to be in your flesh, that's, a, that's an indicator of something. And so this doesn't, though, remove us from usefulness to the Lord. The fact that we uh, struggle with sin, that we have sin that indwells us, does not remove us from usefulness. I think of David, who was a man after God's own heart, yet he struggled with sin. Here is Paul in Romans 7 discussing the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, who wrote this very book of Galatians, who penned most of the New Testament, yet here he is used by the Lord to establish his church. And for you and I, we need to understand that just because we struggle with the flesh, because we haven't, we're not perfect, doesn't mean that God is through with us. And in fact, he may even 
receive more glory using an imperfect instrument than he would a perfect instrument. So we have the honor, and what comfort is to be found knowing that like Paul, a wretched man that I am, can be used of God, can be a useful instrument in his arsenal. Now we're talking, our ambassadors. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We realize, and we talked about the fruit of the Spirit being a character sketch of Jesus, that he is the perfect representation of all of these characteristics that we're looking at. Therefore, we, we understand that it is a representation of him through us, that the Lord is showing the lost, or, or even believers, as we'll find in chapter 6, himself through us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, it says, To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now the ambassadors for Christ... God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When God said, I want you to represent the world, to my, me to the world, he didn't leave us helpless. He didn't leave us without uh, the Holy Spirit to do that on our behalf. Because O oh, wretched man that I am, like Paul in Romans chapter 7, that which I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And what I want to be doing, that's not what I find myself at. And so we understand that that struggle is real, that our representation of Christ and his love and concern, the reconciliation that we experience in his shed blood, the imputed righteousness, in and of our own strength, is an imperfect and a probably poor representation. But here we have the fruit of the Spirit. As we abide with Christ, as we walk in the Spirit, as we endeavor to uh, daily pick up our cross and follow Him, that He will manifest through us a more clear and a better representation than we could generate ourselves. This isn't about mimicking Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is not about mimicking Jesus. While that is a worthy goal, right? That, per, that striving for personal holiness falls into that category. But this is not something that God tells you and I to develop, nor does he tell you and I to manufacture or to fake it. We're not going to mimic it. It's not as it... it, it it's more of a growing as a child, right? Your child may do things that you do in the way that you do them. They may mimic you. They may copy you. And ultimately, they may become like you. But it's by practice. As we talked about those disciples in the past, in Jesus's day, the disciples, they spent time with. It wasn't, I showed up to, to Bible school class and they taught me these things. No, that discipleship was a day in, day out. I'm going to live with the master, observe and watch, and hear and see that wisdom. 
And by a process of growing, we become like them. So in many respects, we confuse the fruit of the Spirit and sanctification. This growing into the image of Christ. This is not something that we are engaged in on our own. This is the fruit of the Spirit, something that He is doing through us, something that He is showing the world through you and I. In Mark chapter 13, if you'll turn there with me for just a moment, Mark chapter 13, verse 11, and this seems a bit of an odd passage to turn to as we study through the gifts of the Spirit, or excuse me, the, the fruit of the Spirit, but uh, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus is speaking and he, he's warning his disciples that you're going to be delivered up. There are going to be those who will accuse you and bring you, like the Apostle Paul, before he had converted when he was Saul, who would pursue them even and would deliver them up to councils to be judged. And in the middle of that passage, whereas he concludes that passage, that thought to his, his, in the middle of it rather, sorry, in verse 11, he says, but when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak. Neither do you premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now, I am a firm advocate, and you've heard me many times, and I'm not changing my position, that we should be able to contend for the faith. We should be able to stand for it, to defend it to represent it, and to articulate it well. From a biblical perspective, we should have a firm grasp there. But what Jesus is telling you and I is that when we are delivered up, when we stand in those positions, that the Holy Spirit is going to interact through us with the audience. If you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I'm convinced that in many respects, as we read some of the things that are recorded there, that are said by these martyrs who are standing there about to die for their faith in Jesus Christ, that we are in some respect, now it's not Holy Scripture, it's not revelatory in, in any sense, but we are seeing the Holy Spirit ministering through those people to their audience, just as Jesus said is going to happen here. And in the same sense, when you and I have interactions, whether we're standing in front of councils facing imminent death, or we're standing in the grocery line talking with somebody who doesn't know Christ, or we're encouraging a brother or sister in the Lord, that the same representation of the Holy Spirit through us, as we have decided daily to pick up our cross, to, to walk in the Spirit, to let my life be His, in every way, shape, and form, that the Holy Spirit is engaged in that in ways that we may not have ever seen or understood. And those are going to come out and they're going to be characterized, as it were, as we find this list of characteristics, love, peace, joy, long-suffering. Those will be the things and the, the representations of who Christ is of God's long-suffering to us, where all of those things will be represented through us. So we are ambassadors. We are being used by God to represent Him, and He didn't leave us without a, a, a mechanism where we can represent Him clearly and accurately. 
Okay, that's that's it. We're going to get into the fruit of the Spirit proper. It's about time. Here we are. The fruit of the Spirit is first, first, love. Now, there are those who would say that the fruit of the Spirit is love, period, and that all of the other characteristics are simply characterizations of love. And I think that there is some potential truth in that. I don't know that we have to go to that extent, but uh, here it is. First off, to understand uh, that this manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and, and ultimately all of them, we have to understand that this is something that, that is characteristic of God that is being shown through us. So this is, when we're talking about love being one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit that we uh, show others, that God is showing through us, we have to understand that it is His love shown through us. Now, we are commanded to love. I mean, we're not absolved from any obligation. But we have to look, if we want to understand it properly, what does it look like? John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. God who's willing to do everything, lay up and sacrifice even the most precious things. And, and I think that, obviously, Jesus is God. We realize that from John chapter 1 and everywhere else in Scripture where Jesus claimed to be God. But it's put in that familiar relationship in some respects so that we might understand it. We understand the sacrifice, how near and precious we were to him that he would give even his son in exchange for us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it tells us that God showed us, he commended his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's an important thing for us to understand because it was unconditional. There was no condition that you do this and then you become loved. Or I will show you love when this happens. He did it while we were yet sinners, while we were still at odds with him, as we're going to find. So the love that God is showing through us is unconditional. It is sacrificial to the extent that he would give up even the most precious things that he might redeem his children. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, we know that we have this description of love. Now in the King James it says charity, other translations it says love, but it's the same word. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. As we look at these characteristics, and this is why this is where people will go, and this is where they stand and say, Well, love is characterized by all these other things, all the other fruit of the Spirit that we have listed for us in Galatians. We find many of them exemplified here. They are characteristics of love. So there is some truth in that statement. 1 Corinthians 13, let's begin in verse 4. Charity or love suffers long and is kind. Charity envies not. Charity vaunts not itself up. It's not puffed up. Does not behave itself unseemly. Seeks not her own and is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And last, he says, it never fails. Now, you and I, as we endeavor to love those that are around us, we have to understand that sometimes we fail them. We're not perfect. 
We don't intend to. It isn't our purpose. We don't go about and say, today, in my love for you, I'm going to fail, and I choose at this moment that that's the way this day is going to go. But we do. And I bring that up because what we have to understand is what is being described here is not our love for others, but the love of, that God has towards us. And as he manifests, as he shows himself to the world around us through, through us, this is the kind of love that he is showing. Now, it's also the goal for you and I. When he commands us to love one another, this is the goal of how we should love one another that it suffers long. We're going to talk about long-suffering this morning. That, that it endures all things. That it believes all things. Now, that doesn't mean that love believes everything that it hears. Right? Because if that's what you believe, listen, I got something to sell you. Some bridge. <laughs> okay. But this is a description of that love. This is how God loved us. And if we take the time to study throughout Scripture, we see all of these characteristics. God doesn't point at himself, and, and, and he is to be honored. He is to be glorified. But he doesn't stand there and pound his chest and say, Thou shalt love me. He's not imposing himself. In 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, and really the bulk of 1 John chapter 4, that chapter uh, is a survey of the love of God towards us. Um, and, but it continues on to describe using the model that God has. This is how God has loved us. This is how we ought to love one another. So when we talk about the, the love that God has for us, it is also the goal and the command that we have and how we should show love to others. It is a lot harder to show love to others the way that God showed love to us than to show love to others in some way that we think we should show love. Because our love has limits, it has bounds, it has conditions. It has a, a line in the sand where on the other side of that, it's really going to be a struggle. Whereas God, even in the very beginning, knowing that Adam and Eve, that man would reject him and choose to sin against him and, and leave fellowship with him, would still create them. And, in, and even before, as we read in the New Testament, even before time began, have a plan in place that was going to require everything of him so that he might redeem them and be in fellowship with them once again. Now, there is no need that God was trying to satisfy in and of himself. He is completely sufficient. But the only motivation that I can conceive of that would fit within the context of all of that is that he would love us enough that he would love you and me, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, David and Saul, enough that he would still go through the effort, if I can say effort, if speaking something into existence is effort for an omnipotent God, I don't know, but that he would do all of that anyway. And that in the fullness of times, he would send forth his son made after the image of man so that he might redeem us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we ought also 
to love one another. We're not seeking God. We're not in pursuit of Him. We're not in the act of showing Him love apart from Christ. We love Him because He loved us. It is a reciprocation of what we have received freely from Him. Now, as love is produced in us, we love God and we love man. As the Holy Spirit bears this fruit in our life, as we grow in our understanding of it by observation, by practice, right? We're, by reason of use, we have our senses discerned. Now, I realize that's an application to the Word of God, but there's still a principle there. And here it is, it becomes more natural for us. We become more like Christ. We do love better than we did before. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, we read it, Beloved, if God so loved us, so we ought also to love one another. In 1 John 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. If we want to reciprocate the love that God has shown us, if we want to show God love, He said, Obey me. For many people, that's a very hard pill to swallow. I have my own ideas. I have a set way that I want to interact with people. I have a set way that I want to do things. Uh, I have a set way that I want to commune with God. And as we've gone through and as we studied several things over the last year uh, in regard to idolatry and, and all of these kinds of things, I hope, I'm hopeful that those things are coming to your mind because if that's what you feel that you can get away with, then you have a different God. You need to shore those things up. God said that we would obey Him, that if we want to show Him love, we'll obey Him. You remember Saul when he's told to kill all the animals, kill all the people? What did God tell him? When, when Samuel the prophet shows up, what's this bleeding? Saul, why am I hearing sheep? You're supposed to kill them all. And he says, well, we were going to offer him. We were going to show love to God by the way that we were going to offer him these things. And he says, oh, Saul, God wants obedience more than sacrifice. If you want to show God love, we're going to obey him. And we're going to be engaged with showing love to people. If he loved us, then we should love other people. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, for brethren, we have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. That we would live that love out in, in service, that we would not take the ability and the freedom that we enjoy in Christ and sacrifice our brothers and sisters in the Lord or any other person on the altar, that altar but that we would lay our own self down and serve in love. In John chapter 15, as Jesus is speaking about the parable of the vine and the branches, and we made this uh, parallel last, last week, maybe the week before, about walking in the Spirit and that being, um, in many respects, the same as abiding in Christ. In that parable... In John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, he doesn't just say love one another. He says, love one another as I have loved you. 
we're, we're going to love people as God has commanded us to, as he has demonstrated us to, that we would serve, that, we, that our life would be at service to others, that it would be laid down, that we would sacrifice, that we would suffer long, that we would not seek our own, that we wouldn't be puffed up. Don't, it's not about looking at me. Those characteristics that we read in 1 Corinthians 13 would be true of us. As the Spirit shows love through us, and as we develop in that by the interaction with the Holy Spirit. In verse 13, he continues on, Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Listen, we tease at our house. I mean, it's only slightly teasing because it's pretty much true, right? You're all, and I got, you know, it's on my doormat. You're welcome, but leave by nine. Right? I'm going to bed where... <laughs> And I know we tease about it uh, all too often, right? People after Bible studies, sometimes we stay later, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm using it's it's become a, a running joke, and and that's fine. I'm fine to be the butt of the joke. What I'm getting at, though, is that it doesn't matter if I want to go to bed at nine. It doesn't matter if I'm tired. It doesn't matter what has gone on. When there's people at our house, right, that, those are the focus, those people. And I'm going to serve, I'm going to lay down my right to go to bed at 9 o'clock or earlier if I can in desire to be in fellowship, in desire to be in service to, in communion with those people that God has brought into my life, that I love and find me dear just as God would do with you and I. As love is produced in us, we love God and we love man. It comes out. As the abundance of our heart is changed, we love in different ways. Ways that we would not have conceived of. Ways that require more of us than we might have previously thought. But as he said, you're going to obey my commandments. That's going to be a showing of love and my commandments aren't grievous. And I'll just make you understand that one of those commands that Jesus gave you and I is to love. It's not grievous. We might put it in that category sometimes. When it's 1130 and my eyes are heavy, it's pretty grievous, but it's really not. Next, fruit of the Spirit is love. The love of God shown through us. The love of God developed within us as the Spirit is engaged in our lives. Second, joy. Because this joy that is being described here is from the Holy Spirit, right? This is something that He is producing in you and I. It is independent of circumstance. Sometimes we confuse joy and happiness, right? I cannot be happy about something that's going on in my life. The car broke down. I'm not happy about that. I'm not enthused about that situation. But I'm still joyful. It is not dependent upon circumstance. It has nothing to do with what may be going on in my life or in my family or in this country or in the world. It is independent of those things. It is something that God bears within us. And so the joy of the believer, the joy that we enjoy, is founded in the finished work of Christ and is sure. 
He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Therefore, the joy that we have is unchanging. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. For you had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Right here, here are is this these Hebrews, and they're they took compassion upon the author of the book of Hebrews, quite possibly Paul, and they they ministered to him. They were distressed about his circumstance. Here is the apostle that God has called to the Gentiles who we have received benefit from, instruction and encouragement in the Lord. And here he is in prison, in bonds. And what does he tell them? He commends them. He says, you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. That no matter what the circumstance was that dictated that you would provide for his needs, that it was good, that it was something to be rejoiced in, that it was understood that this is good. Were they happy about it? Were they convinced that this is, boy, this is exactly what we would have chosen? I'm convinced that's probably not the case. In James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, my brother encountered all joy, when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, the trying of your faith works patience. We fall into all kinds of circumstances. And that word temptations, it means testing or trials. Now, as we study through the book of James, we talked about trials and testings can come in more than one way. We typically interpret them as those hard things that may come in life. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the hard thing is the testing and the good thing, the easy thing that we would perceive that way is not. There's testing on both sides of those. But he says, hey, count it all joy when you fall in these diverse temptations. When Paul is in prison, bound and unable to go and minister to you directly, yet here he is on an all-expense-paid trip directly to Rome with all the time in the world to pin these things as God inspired him by the Holy Spirit so that we might have the Word of God in its completeness. What we may have perceived as wrong or bad or, or a terrible circumstance, God was working for His purpose and His will. And the same is true in your life as it is in Paul's life. That God is working those things for our best and for our, gro- our growth. The joy that we have is unconditional in regard to the circumstances, what is surrounding us. It doesn't have anything to do with those things. It is founded in the finished work of Christ, and so therefore it's unchanging. We are, oh boy, I gotta catch you up here. We are partners in joy with God. And I say that because we can express joy on our own. We, we experience the joy that is associated with our salvation. Uh, we experience the joy and even some of the praises that we shared this morning are responses and rejoicing in the faithfulness of God. This is something that we should be practiced in. 
The book of Psalms is full of rejoicing. The book of Psalms is also full of hard things. Yet here is the faithfulness of God. Despite the circumstances, we're going to rejoice. Let's look at a few examples in, in Psalm chapter 5. You could just about randomly open to any psalm and make this point. So, you know, there's no special order or sequence or preeminence in these particular verses. They just, they're everywhere. The book of Psalms is full of it. Psalm chapter 5, verses 11 through 12 says, but let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy because thou defendest them. Let them also of thy name be joyful in thee, for thou wilt bless them. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. What are we rejoicing in? We're rejoicing in the faithfulness of God. We're rejoicing in his defense. We're rejoicing in the love that has been shown to each one of us. Those things completely and wholly in Christ. Not in the things that we've done. It would be a joyless experience to earn my salvation. In Psalm 33, Psalm 33, verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. It is a good adornment. It is, the, it is a characteristic that we should hold. Now, I'll tell you, that I'm probably guilty of not crediting, not rejoicing in the Lord as often as I should. That I may be quick to overlook, that I may be quick to not articulate correctly what God has done. I'm as guilty as anybody. And I think that it It, it it becomes normal. It becomes normal. God is so faithful that it becomes normal. And we take it for granted that God, in fact, was faithful. That we got up this morning. <laughs> that we slept last night or that we didn't sleep last night. Whatever the case may be, that here was God engaged in our life with us, doing something. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous. Praise is comely, it is, should be the adornment of the upright. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. I use on, purpose, on purpose, because what has happened here is this is David writing this psalm after Nathan the prophet confronts him about his sin with Bathsheba. So here he is in the midst of his sinfulness. Here he is in the middle of conviction. Here he is in, in, in all of those things surrounding that circumstance. And in verse 8, I will reprove, oh, that's, that's chapter 50, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Here is David asking God to intervene in his heart and understanding so that when he is corrected of the Lord, he will rejoice. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12. 
that God who loves us too much to leave us where we're at would correct us, would chasten us as his sons. And no chastening for the time seems pleasant, but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Teach us, O Lord, that we might rejoice when you deal with us as sons. When we find your chastening. It's easy and we, we are quick to praise God. We are, we are more quick to praise God when things are going well. But when things are sideways or upside down completely, sometimes we, we find it hard there. We miss that this is, in fact, the faithfulness of God in our life, that he has not left us, that he hasn't forsaken us, that he is engaged rightly and properly with you and I as his children. And all that because he loves us. We have love, we have joy, we have peace. Now, peace means, the word literally means exemption. This is, this, is a, this is a good definition. Exemption from the havoc and the rage of war. I don't remember if that was in Thayer's Greek lexicon or if that was in Strong's, but one of the two had that. It's exemption from the havoc and the rage of war. It means harmony or concord, right? That concord means agreement. Between individuals, it also means security and safety. Now, I'm convinced that all three of those are conceived in the peace of the Holy Spirit. Now, you and I, we are born enemies of God. And, and when we are born enemies of something, that means that we're at war with something. We are not exempt from the rage and the havoc of war. In Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1, 21, says, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies, so that's where we were, that's who we were, in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled, has he brought into harmony, has he brought into concord, agreement, We were separated. We were born enemies. Yet Christ has brought us to and brought that harmony within us. Harmony is pleasant. And disharmony? I don't know. Disharmony is not a word. The opposite of harmony? Discord? Discord is the word. Is not pleasant. Now, when we worship here, you probably hear a lot of discord because I'm not a singer. I'm a terrible guitar player. And we do the things that we do because... It honors the Lord. But it may not always be a pleasant experience for you here. <laughs> but the harmony is nice. We enjoy the harmony. We used to, years and years ago, we rented the, the building over there on K Street that used to be where the barber shoppers met. And they would get together and sing and they'd have their harmonies. And, and I remember, because we'd go to some of their concerts and their events when they still did those. And and it was nice. You can when there's a harmony that's there, it resonates with you. It's enjoyable. In Romans chapter five, verse ten. Romans chapter five, verse ten. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, so much more being reconciled, 
we shall be saved by his life. So here we are reconciled by Christ. But he doesn't just stop there. We who are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There is a surety in that peace that we experience. Now, apart from Christ, because we are enemies, we are justly condemned. Listen, I've read the entire Bible. You can start at the end if you want. The enemies of God lose. Those who are at war with him do not win. But we who are with him, who are in his family, who are on his side, we reap the blessings of that. We reap the eternal life. We reap the surety of our salvation. We are brought into harmony. And we're brought into harmony by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53, if you'll turn there with me, there should be a comma there. There aren't 510 verses in Isaiah 53, but <laughs> Isaiah 53, verse 5. This is the method of reconciliation, the, the method of being brought into harmony with God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace, the punishment of our peace, was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We understand that Jesus Christ on the cross became sin so that we might become his righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He did everything necessary. He faced the wrath of God, the punishment that was rightly ours, so that we could be made at peace with our Creator. In verses 10 through 11 in Isaiah 53, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servants justify many, for he shall bear their iniquity. We are brought into harmony. We escape the havoc and the rage of war through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are reconciled. In addition to that reconciliation and being brought into peaceful relationship with our Creator, with God Himself, we have the peace of the assurance that we can safely trust in him. Isaiah 26, 3, uh, he whose mind is stayed, he will, you will keep him in perfect peace. Whose mind, we better just turn there. It's really close, but it's, not, it's not, nothing like getting the whole thing right. <laughs> Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. The same abiding, walking, that staying of mind results in the fruit of peace. It's an absolute trust in the goodness, an absolute trust in the faithfulness, and an absolute trust in the sovereignty of God. In John chapter 14, John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And as he is speaking to them, he's talking to them and, and letting them know that he's going to be leaving. 
and they're somewhat distraught. And Jesus at that point begins to converse with them about the Comforter, about the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 26 and 27, but the Comforter, which is the Holy, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus would tell his disciples, I'm telling you these things so that when they happen, when they occur, you're not stumbled. You're not caught up. You're not distraught. You're not wrecked in your faith because I told you they were going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to remind us and instruct us, bring to remembrance all those things that Christ has told us. Remind us of His love and concern for us. Remind us of His faithfulness. And as a result of those things, we have this peace, the peace of God in our hearts, the peace that Christ promised. I'm going to give you that. Therefore, we don't let our heart be troubled. We have this assurance we can safely trust that as the word says that he is for us, who can be against us? In Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Be careful for nothing. Don't, don't be anxious for anything, he says. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, which that, that encapsulates rejoicing. No matter what the circumstance is, we're rejoicing. Let your requests be made known unto God. I was asked one time, why do we need to pray? Because God knows everything. He already knows your request. And that's absolutely true. And I'm convinced that the reason that we need to pray isn't any benefit for God, but it is for benefit for you and I. We are expressing, whether it's verbally or within our hearts and minds, a trust, a faith in what God is capable of that he will and is for me and not against me. So we pray, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, that peace that Jesus Christ had promised, which passes all understanding. It doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be a peaceful existence in whatever may be happening, but yet here it is. There might be strife, there might be angst, there might be all kinds of things happening and surrounding us, yet here we are trusting in God, knowing that He is in fact sovereign, that He is faithful, that He is good, that He loves us. And it passes all understanding. And that shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace that is sown within you and I because we can safely trust in Him keeps our hearts and minds stayed. Tied fast, like we were talking about earlier. Doesn't mean the same thing as running fast. It's right there. Not tossed about by every wind of doctrine, but here it is rooted in the truth of who God is and what He's done. We can safely trust Next, we have long-suffering. Long-suffering. Now, this is probably the, one of the least pleasant ones from our perspective because the way that it is manifested in us, 
require suffering. <laughs> it's in the name. Now, it means patient endurance. That's what it means. And first off, we see that God has suffered long with mankind. He's not asking you or I to do anything that he hasn't himself done. And to be honest, he's done it with greater patience than we could have ever put forth on our own. In 2 Peter chapter 3, turn there with me. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 9. And ultimately, this is a description, this is a discussion about the end times. Why is the Lord not returned? He says in verse 9, the Lord is not slack. He's not uh, negligent. He's, he, he's going to keep his promises. He's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So just know right there that here is God, and he's suffering long. He's long-suffering. He's patiently enduring mankind. If we jump down to verse 15, says, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you. So here is God, right? He's long-suffering. He's putting up with. When Adam and Eve sinned, God had already told them what would happen. He said, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you'll die. And that's absolutely what happened. The spiritual death took place. And the physical degradation that led to physical death began. It literally means that dying, you will die. So here they are spiritually dead, and they're going to be physically dead at some point. God would have been perfectly justified, perfectly justified in killing both of them immediately. But instead, he chose to suffer long with mankind. Since the creation, just after the creation, he's been putting up with man and his corruptness and the effects and the corrupting effects, that's redundant, but, you know, of sin. Why? It's not because he's forgetful or, or anything like that. It's because He's not willing that any would perish. And this maybe get off in the weeds just a little bit, so I'm going to try not to get too far away, but God knew you and I before we were ever conceived. And he loved us enough that he would suffer long with us. He would suffer long with all of those that we read about in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. He would suffer long with those, with those, well, he only suffered long up till Genesis 6, right? And then, then he started suffering along with a whole different group of people. <laughs> but here we see the suffering of God, long-suffering, his patient endurance. Now, you and I uh, have the example of those who have gone before us, who have lived in this world that is affected by sin. I mean, we and we see it, we experience it. It's, it's part of the reason that when we when we see political candidates and we see things happening, that it that it strikes us. Because we see this is this is not a 
perfect picture of what God had created. This is a corruption of what is what was declared to be perfect by God. And so those things, we, we, we take issue with those things because we perceive them to have a great effect, either for bad or for good. And probably they do in many respects. But I'll tell you that we're not the first generation, none of us here, you know, there's more than one generation represented here this morning. We're not, none of us are the first generation to suffer through anything. We were talking about it, uh, Jessica and I were talking about it, but I was talking about it with somebody else the other night. You know, we look at our children and the prospects of buying a home. I mean, I remember when I bought our first house, it was, I don't remember exactly what we paid because I'm very forgetful, but it was like, it was less than $70,000. And at the time I'm like, oh man, that, it seemed like a lot. There's a, a house for sale just down the road from me. It's a thousand square foot house. So it's just a tiny little house. And it's pretty dated. It needs, it needs some love. $225,000. Comparable to the first house that I bought. I'm like, wow, that's, that's, they're going to have to suffer through. <laughs> through. But you know what? The grace of God, and this is what Jessica reminded me of. She said, the grace of God is sufficient and has been sufficient for every generation and whatever they've had to endure. And it's absolutely true. And we look at the examples that we have throughout Scripture. Turn with me to James chapter 5. In James chapter 5, we have uh, a specific group of people that are referenced for us. He says in James 5, beginning in verse 10, Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You've heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. We see the prophets, we see those who would be God's messengers. They got to preach the good tidings the faithfulness of God. They got to preach those things and they were popular in those days. But on the other days, when they had to bring the bad tidings, the things about condemnation and judgment and the hard stuff, weren't particularly popular. In fact, as we read in the Old Testament, we find many of them were imprisoned. Some of them killed. But they supernaturally endured the scorn and the hardship associated with their calling. And by the, by the Holy Spirit, so do we. We take them as our example. We see what they did. and we, Even Job is referenced here, who lost everything. Yet in the end, what do we see? We see the mercy, as he says here, the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And Job is restored above and beyond what he had lost. That God was, in fact, faithful through the midst of all of it. Now, I think for you and I, we endure, and we do so, we, we suffer long. <laughs> we do so if we're not ashamed of the gospel. And I say that because if we're willing to not contend for the faith, if we're not willing to stand and we're just flowing with everybody else. 
here are the prophets and they are the messengers of God and they understand the calling that has been put upon them and they realize that all I can say is what God commands me to say. Whether it's perceived as good or bad, favorable or unfavorable, that's what, he, that's what we're going to have to say. It's what we're going to preach. And for you and I as believers, in, in many respects, it's the same. We are those ambassadors. We are the messengers of God to the lost and dying world around us. That world that is at enmity, that are enemies of God. The same world who, when we bring light into the darkness, doesn't like it being shined in. They don't want their deeds to be revealed as evil. And so they recoil from the truth. The very truth that Christ said would set them free. And those who would stand, who are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it is the power of God and the salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, to every person who has ever lived, to those who would stand, there's going to be repercussions. There are going to be those who would stand against us. There's going to be a, an opportunity for patient endurance, for long-suffering. There are plenty of opportunities for long-suffering for you and I. If you have families, there's plenty of opportunity for long-suffering in love. It is one of the characteristics that we read. Love suffers long. It puts up with an awful lot. But for you and I as ambassadors, as we look at what, what Paul is contending for here within the book of Galatians, that this is how we are saved. It isn't of any works. It's by the finished work of Jesus Christ, by that justification that we receive from him and him alone. We're going to have to contend for those things. And Paul did. He had no small disputation, and there was conflict as a result. There was an opportunity for long-suffering. As believers, we also suffer long because of the effects of sin in the world. We're not just suffering long because we stand for the gospel. We're not just suffering long because there are people that we love and that are near and dear to us. We're not just suffering long needlessly. But sometimes we, we are long-suffering simply because we live in a world that is corrupted by sin. We see and we understand the struggle of creation against its creator. We look forward to, we even long for the redemption of our bodies in that final deliverance. Where our life that is hid with the heavenlies is united with our experience. In Romans chapter 8, if you'll turn there with me, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. And I want you to consider who's writing this. This is the Apostle Paul, who has been sought to have been killed, who has been shipwrecked, who has been stoned, who has imprisoned, who has, who has suffered long for the name of Christ. And he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, he must have been from not around here because he reckons things i reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us can i tell you that the present time was not right then and only then when paul was there that the present time is still the present time today and the 
sufferings that we may endure of this present time aren't even can't even come to the table to be compared with the glories that we expect and look forward to and hope for, just as Paul did. For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. Listen, it isn't just you and I. It's all of everything that God has made that is tired of, <laughs> of the corruption that is endured. But God subjected it in hope. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our body. Now, we know, as we've talked about, we've been adopted into the family of God as we studied that through Galatians so far. But we're really looking forward to the redemption of our bodies, he says here. And, and that's the what is sown in corruption being raised in incorruption. That this tent that we have to live in, endure with, and, you know, patch up and sometimes it leaks or, you know, whatever the problem may be. Here it is. It's only temporary. This is as bad as it gets for you and I in Christ. He goes on in verse 26. He says, likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. So while we're here, we have to understand that we have the Holy Spirit within us to, uh, to bear us in our distress. And that He grants to you and I a supernatural endurance. And in fact, when we are in such distress and we're overwhelmed so that we don't even know how that we should pray, He intervenes on our behalf and the Lord will redeem all things for His glory and for our best. The Spirit helps our infirmities, for we know not how we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings cannot be uttered. And he that searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. We have that assurance. The Holy Spirit is going to, by his indwelling presence, aid us, supernaturally manifest through us a patient endurance of affliction, of hardship, of the effects of sin in this world. So much so that it is a hopeful thing for you and I. That we look forward to that which God is going to bear in us yet to come. All right, we're going to finish up the rest of these next week. But let's pray before we worship this morning. Father, we praise you for the opportunity to be here again. Lord, I thank you for the encouragement from your word. That, Lord, here are things that 
we could never in and of ourselves do in any perfect way, that we couldn't represent you. But Lord, you have given us your spirit that we might represent you to the world around us. And Lord, I pray that as we have that opportunity before us, that as we do represent you, that as the as we abide with you, as we walk in the spirit, and as you bear fruit in our life, God, that it would become not only a, a clear representation to those that we would love to see come to faith, Lord, that it would be a clear representation to the body of Christ, but Lord, that it would be by your grace, an instrument of instruction. Part of our sanctification that we might be more like you tomorrow than we are today. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word and to receive from it. Lord, as we, uh, as we sing praise to you this morning, I pray that it would be pleasing to you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.